Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Nobody knows my true identity. Everyone must only speculate about me. One reasonable way to think of me is as a rather wealthy, mid-level Roman official who lives in Philippi, Macedonia, about 40 years after Jesus died. When I first... You'd already been taught many things about Jesus. You'd also previously been taught many things about Greek and Roman gods. I believe he was on the verge of becoming a Christian, but he wanted to know beyond any doubt that Jesus Christ was a true God and not just another mythical being. I wanted him to know for certain the things he had been taught about Jesus. I wrote my book knowing that it might not only sway him to a decision, but others who would read it as well. My name is Theophilus, and Luke wrote his book to me. After making a careful examination of all the facts, Luke wrote his gospel. After a brief explanation of why he wrote it, Luke launches into the birth narratives of the cousins, John the Baptist and Jesus. He is a pragmatic doctor. Luke reaches no words concerning their miraculous births. Think of me as a non-Jewish God-fearer who loves to hang around the synagogues and hear about the God of the Hebrews. When I heard the gospel and found that I could have eternal life without having to follow the mosaic law, I only imagine my joy, especially to avert suffering through the disfiguring act of circumcision, so horrific to us Romans and Greeks. But after hearing more and more about the Christian faith, I had more and more questions. I wanted answers. I asked Luke for them. One of the things that you might notice in Luke's writings is that he did not spend much time putting events into historical, political, or even geographical context. I already knew those things. There was no need for Luke to talk about them. Unfortunately, you are probably not as familiar with those things as I am. Let me give an example of context that I'm talking about. Jesus lived his childhood during the time of Emperor Caesar Augustus, and his adulthood under the successor to Augustus, Tiberius. This was during Rome's golden age. Rome controlled the Mediterranean Sea and most of Europe. The purpose of the empire was to support the city of Rome and 
grow its powers. Israel, or Judea, was a tiny dot on Rome's radar. It comprised less than 1% of Rome's population and landmass. Romans thought of Israel about as often as New Yorkers think of Tulsa. It's in Oklahoma. Flyover country, I believe is the term. If it hadn't been for Israel's relatively new seaport at Caesarea, the Romans would not have cared if Israel had fallen into the ocean and disappeared. It was through that seaport that many of Rome's luxury goods were transported. Rome sent second-rate officials to rule over Judea because the weather was awful, the Jews were extremely troublesome, and there wasn't much to steal to enrich oneself. If you were climbing the political or military ladder, you avoided Israel if at all possible. Instead, Rome gave immense power to like King Herod the Great. As long as they kept the peace and tax revenue flowing to Rome, those local rulers could do as they pleased. Because the Bible is written to Christians and Jews, and its stories are primarily located in Israel, you can easily get the idea that Israel was the center of attention of the world. It was quite the opposite in my life. When Jesus was born in Nazareth, it was the equivalent of him being born in Bucknell, again in Oklahoma, and tiny, even by tiny town standards. He certainly would not have been considered a threat to Rome. And Herod would have been expected to deal with Jesus and his followers in any way Herod deemed fit. In your time, when someone wants to write a biography about the most famous person in the world, they have mountains of digital information at their fingertips. An author's task is to sort through the vast amount of information and decide what is worthy to include in a person's life story. It is up to the reader to decide whether the information is credible and if the story really lines up with reality. I'm sure it has gotten more difficult for today's readers. Many of your current writers have their own agendas often outweighing the supposed true story. In my time, things were a little different. Virtually all of the biographies and many of the history books were written at the paid request of rich people or powerful politicians. It was expected that the author would slant the storyline to favor whoever was paying for the book. Sometimes the slant would be so severe as to make the story unrecognizable to those familiar with the situation. However, that didn't matter to most readers, as long as the story was good. My situation was quite different. I was only interested in hearing the truth. In fact, one of the reasons I chose to listen to Luke was because of his esteemed reputation for gathering relevant facts and coming to accurate conclusions. His training as a doctor taught him how to do exactly that. He insisted that this final scroll should be irrefutably accurate. I knew that would be a challenge because he'd be describing miracles and the actions of God. Since Luke wrote his story many decades after the death of Jesus, you may wonder what information sources Luke used. I insisted on knowing his sources. There are many people who knew Jesus well, who were still alive and could tell their stories directly. Many people who had already died had told their stories to others, and Luke gathered as many of those as possible. 
personal friends with many of Jesus' apostles and family members. He questioned them at every opportunity. Mark's written account of the life of Jesus was an especially valuable source since one of Mark's primary sources was the Apostle Peter. There were other accounts about the life of Jesus that have been written. Many of these later disappeared from history, so future scholars will be puzzled about the source of some of Luke's information. As a point of interest, my friend Matthew also consulted some of the sources Luke used. That partially explains why some of their passages are so similar, but there are two other factors coming into play. In my world, it was quite acceptable to copy, or partially copy, the writings of other people without giving them credit. So if the passage looks exactly the same in Luke's account and Matthew's, you don't know whether the original source was Luke, Matthew, or someone else. Second, and related to the previous point. All of the New Testament writers wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He may very well be or written word for word. In many of the myths of the Roman and Greek gods, the gods have children in rather interesting ways, and those gods and children have curious superpowers. Here's the first challenge that I had for Luke. I wanted him to convince me why the Romans and Greek gods were myths but Jesus and his birth wasn't a myth? See the dilemma? I was writing about miracles and healings. I was not a witness to the miracles and healings of Jesus, but I was a witness to many of the healings and miracles of Paul and many other apostles. With my training, you can assume that I would not easily be fooled by fake healings and miracles. You can also assume I did not write about them if I did not fully believe they were true. I desperately did not want to start my account with the miracle births of John and Jesus. Both would have sounded like Greek myths to Theophilus. Fortunately, the Holy Spirit inspired me to tell those stories in such a way that they would lead the reader to understand the divinity of Jesus. Which brings me to a topic I need to address before you hear Mary's story. From the point of view of the 21st century, it's almost impossible for you to understand a certain topic fully or understand its theological significance. As an extraordinarily insightful doctor, I feel like I can do a good job of explaining it to you. This subject is crucial to understanding the life of Jesus. It will take a few minutes, so be patient. Please. One reason you will have a hard time understanding this next topic is because of modern birth control methods, birth control pills, and DNA testing today. Most women want to keep from getting pregnant until they're actually ready to have a child, and they have the methods and the means to do so. If there's ever a question of paternity, a simple DNA test will settle the matter. Another reason birth control methods obscure your understanding is that young women no longer feel as compelled to remain virgins. They often perceive that the main reason to stay a virgin is to keep from getting pregnant. A precious few still believe that it's God's will for them to remain chaste until marriage. Adult believe virginity is as common as it used to be. As one of your country songs 
Suffice it to say, the number of virgins is dwindling. In my time, there were three crucial reasons for a young Jewish woman to remain a virgin until marriage. First, if she wasn't a virgin, that meant she had committed the sin of fornication and was subject to harsh punishments, including death by stoning of the community and her family. If she was even suspected of this, it was highly unlikely she would ever marry an honorable man. The second and third reasons are related. Inheritance laws were based on the rule of primogeniture, meaning that the firstborn legitimate son inherited much more than the other sons or daughters. Sometimes the firstborn legitimate son inherited everything. Also, some of the Jewish religious rites required an identification of the firstborn legitimate son. It was absolutely crucial that the Jewish parents could identify the firstborn legitimate son beyond a shadow of a doubt. The only way for a father to know beyond a reasonable doubt that a son was both firstborn and legitimate was for his bride to be a virgin the first time they had intercourse and for her not to be allowed to be around other men until after she That's why so many wedding customs and community rituals were centered on the bride, proving she was a virgin on her wedding night, and then keeping her away from other men. Now, for the medical part of the discussion. The only way for a woman to prove she was a virgin was for her membrane to still be intact on the night of her marriage. This was assumed to be the case if she had bled upon the first act of her intercourse, but could also be proven by a physical examination by a midwife or a doctor. Have you ever wondered how Joseph and Mary's community fully believed that she was a virgin, but was impregnated by the Holy Spirit? Two possible reasons. All of us could have been convinced by the Holy Spirit was how it happened. You might remember they relied on the Holy Spirit for many things, or Mary might have been able to prove her story by being examined by a doctor, a trained woman in the midwifery. The Bible doesn't say if Mary was examined or not, but you can bet that that would have crossed her mind. After all, she was she was pledged to be married. She could have been convicted of forty. And the social penalties would have been severe, maybe even death, but most certainly the end of her engagement to Joseph. Somehow, she and the Holy Spirit convinced her community that she was both pregnant and a virgin. To you, a pregnant virgin is an impossibility. To many Jews who believe the prophet Isaiah, a pregnant virgin was a certain sign. Isaiah wrote, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And will call him Emmanuel. Fortunately, everyone knew that Mary was at the house of David. So they would have been surprised, but not shocked. She was a pregnant virgin. Far from stoning her, they would have thrown her a giant party. Matthew and I listed the genealogies of Jesus. Today, 
the children memorized their ABCs at an early age, but those who were descendants of David learned their genealogies at an early age. Both Joseph and Mary were descendants of David. Jesus was too, which meant he was a legitimate candidate to be the Messiah. I set the stage and introduced you to the main character of my book, Jesus. At his birth, he was the firstborn legitimate son of God and was qualified to be the Messiah. As you hear the stories that helped me write my book, I believe you will also be convinced that Jesus was and still is the Christ, the Messiah.
moved me into my house to convince me to tell my story. I didn't say anything. For a long time. It just triggered so many flashbacks. For the time Gabriel spoke to me, the first time I helped my husband Joseph, the first time I saw Jesus' face, his first miracle, and then the death of my Teenager, young mother, widow, and then the mature woman you see before you now in a flash. So I smiled and turned him down. Nobody would believe my story, so what's the use to tell it? Mary was very likely a young teenager when she became pregnant with Jesus. Her story in Luke is so detailed that it appears like when she gave her eyewitness account of Luke himself. Could Jesus be God's son? Luke showed me some of his early writings about the miracles of Jesus. He convinced me that he might be able to comprehend an incomprehensible story. So, for the very first time, I told him things that nobody had ever heard, except for my husband, Joseph. Things that I had treasured in my heart for many decades. I'm pleased that he was able to choose some of my story to complete his book. You may have noticed that only Luke rounding the birth stories of John and Jesus Luke started his story with my cousin Elizabeth because that's why I started my story. Elizabeth, my most favorite cousin. She was older than I, much older, so I thought of her like an older sister and best friend all wrapped into one. She'd been married and childless for many years, but she and her husband were certain they would have a child bless their marriage. But my earliest memory of Elizabeth is listening to her talk about the son she would have. Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah, they were both descendants of Aaron, so their son would qualify to be a priest at the temple in Jerusalem, just as Zechariah was. But the years went by. They had no children. I, oh, I prayed for them every day. My heart just broke for her. Then Elizabeth came running to my house. I'd never seen her run before, so I was scared to hear her news. She finally caught her breath and she said, he can no longer talk. Zechariah has been struck dumb. And I said, that's horrible news. And she smiled. No, that is wonderful news. She went on to explain that Zechariah had gone to Jerusalem for his one lifelong opportunity to burn incense at the altar. While doing so, the angel Gabriel had come to tell him that he, Zechariah, would soon have a son. When he didn't believe the angel, he was struck down. When Elizabeth believed the angel, she remembered the story of Sarah and was not about getting pregnant in an old age. He started trying that very afternoon. Even though she was quite old, they were going to have a son. Sure enough, Elizabeth soon got pregnant, she went into seclusion, and I'll talk about that a little later, but she took care of herself in every way she could. 
in the course of time, she had a health. Her lifelong dream had been fulfilled. We were all ecstatic, and when her husband acted in faith, his voice was returned. Zechariah groomed their son John to be a priest. It soon became obvious that he was destined for a different life. He loved to learn the scriptures, but he dwelt on the need for Israel to repent and turn back to God. And where most people saw the Jewish leaders as righteous, John saw them as sinful and corrupt. He wanted everyone. Sometimes he would go into the wilderness for days at a time to fast and pray about it. <laughs> the last time I saw John, he was wearing camel skin clothes and he had that dreamy-eyed prophet look, which is what he turned out to be. So back to the seclusion. Well, it was six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy that both of our lives changed, and again. It was the angel Gabriel who announced the news. See, I lived in Nazareth, just a small village, less than 150 people. I was down at the town water well late one morning, drawing water and praying about Elizabeth's baby and my upcoming marriage. See, I was engaged to be married to a fine man. I couldn't wait to start a family of my own. All of a sudden, Gabriel appeared beside me. It seems funny now, but my first thought was that I was causing a scandal by being alone with a man. Well, at least someone who looked like a man. Little did I know that scandal would be mild compared to the one that was about to happen. So, in the most calm voice, Gabriel said, "Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you." Now. I don't care how calming his voice was. I was terrified that an angel would just. Appear and start talking to me. You'll be terrified too if it ever happens to you. I promise. Then he said the craziest thing. Gabriel told me not to be afraid. Like is that some kind of inside angel joke? Because there are always people. Anyway, Gabriel told me that I was to have a son who will reign on the throne of David. I got terribly excited. I was thinking I would be pregnant and I'd have a son, and I'm just going to be so faithful to God. Then I realized he wasn't talking about a future time when I'd be married to Joseph. He was talking about now. So I tried to politely let him know that he might have made a small miscalculation, but. From Zechariah's experience, I knew not to argue with Gabriel. In my most respectful voice, I asked, "How will this be? Since I'm a virgin?" I was pretty sure that announcement might be a deal breaker, but he didn't bat one of his huge eyelashes. He just said something so crazy that I, I still can't believe it's true. He told me that the Holy Spirit would come upon me, and the power of the Most High. Would overshadow me, so my son would be the son of God. Well, I knew from the examples of Sarah and Zechariah not to laugh, so I just bowed my head and said, "I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled." And when I looked up, he was gone. 
Now, you may think that I was completely caught by surprise by the whole Gabriel incident, but you might be wrong. I was of the house of David, so I knew I was qualified to be the mother of the Messiah. And like all, all young women of the house of David, I knew the prophecy. Isaiah had said a virgin would have a child, so I knew I possessed at least two of the characteristics of the mother of the Messiah. Some weeks after Gabriel came to me, I hurried to attend the hill country of Judea to visit Elizabeth in her seclusion. As Elizabeth heard my greeting, her baby jumped in her womb and she was filled with the Holy Spirit. <sighs> For the next three months, Elizabeth and I together. And Elizabeth soon had her baby. Upon my arrival in Nazareth, it was apparent I was pregnant. And that's when I was in a fury. My family and friends accused me of fornication while I was away with Elizabeth, and they begged Joseph to break our engagement. Talk of stunning me. In order to calm everybody down, Joseph sought to find a quiet way to end the engagement. See, he loved me enough to give up his marriage to me if the people would stone me. However, he was also too honorable to lie and say that the baby was his. Then my beloved Joseph got a big surprise. Joseph went to sleep and he had a very powerful dream in which an angel of the Lord appeared to him. He was told to, because the baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit not from a man. He was told to name the baby Jesus. And Joseph did what he would always do. He obeyed the Lord completely and without hesitation. So I was looking forward to a long period of quiet, comfortable seclusion like the one Elizabeth had, but that illusion was soon shattered. See, Caesar Augustus declared that a census was to be taken of the entire empire, and that meant Joseph and I had to go to Bethlehem to register, since we were pledged to be married, and because Bethlehem was the town of his ancestor David. It took many weeks of preparation because we had to travel almost a hundred miles. Now, I don't suspect you've ever walked or ridden a donkey while you're eight pregnant, but it was neither a comfortable nor quick way to travel. It took us more than two weeks, and most nights we slept on the ground on the road. So I was thrilled as we bypassed Jerusalem and went straight to Bethlehem because I knew my baby was ready. I was imagining a nice, comfortable bed, only to find that there were not any available rooms in the town. But there was one person kind enough to let us sleep in his stable, which was really just a shallow cave. However, that soft straw was as pleasant to me as any feather mattress could be. And it was a very good thing we hadn't dawdled because it was time. So Jesus was born in the middle of the night soon after we arrived. We wrapped him. And a few clothes we had for him. We laid him in a feeding trough. And then his true father provided us an unbelievable sight. Joseph and I looked out the cave entrance and saw millions of angels in the night sky just rejoicing at the birth of Jesus. When Joseph looked at them, he knew that Jesus was the Son of God. 
any of his lingering doubts just vanished me a look of love that any wife would die to have. We laughed together because besides us, we thought only a few shepherds would have seen the angels since it was the middle of the night. We laughed even harder when a few hours later, the shepherds arrived at our door to worship our son. We all praised and worshiped God until they had to return to their flocks. And they kept calling my son the little lamb of God without understanding what they were saying. So eight days later, the local priest circumcised our son as required by the laws of Moses. Then sometime after that, we took Jesus to Jerusalem to go through the purification rites. And since we were poor people, we were only required to sacrifice a pair of doves or pigeons. Even so, money changers and bird sellers took advantage of us since we had no choice but to use them. I don't think Jesus ever forgot them when we later told him the story. But as we entered the temple, an old man came straight to us. Simeon was his name. The Holy Spirit had revealed to him that our son was to be the salvation of all nations. After he finished talking to us, an old prophetess came up and gave thanks to God for our son and talked about how he would be the redemption of Jerusalem. Oh, Anna. We marveled at the unexpected reception, but didn't tell anybody about it. Now, I hope you'll take the time to read about the entire birth narrative as told by Luke. One of the things you should notice is the stress he puts on God being glorified throughout the process. Luke understood that the entire life of Jesus was centered on glorifying God. And it started even before his birth. However, as much as I adore Dr. Luke and appreciate his writing, he wasn't able to capture as many details as I would have liked. So I hope you'll also take the time to read the birth narrative in the Gospel of Matthew, where you'll learn about such things as the wise men coming to visit us and the to avoid the evil King Herod's wrath. I won't bore you with a long rendition of his entire childhood, but I will share one last story. When Jesus was 12, we took him to the Passover festival in Jerusalem. Many of your modern scholars believe this was the age when our children become adults. We were traveling with a, a large group of family and friends, and the children played with their friends and moved around in the group as they wished. When we got to Jerusalem, all went well, even though there were tens, thousands of visitors in the town. But after a few days, our group left to return to Nazareth. I wasn't too concerned about Jesus since I thought he was with the men. But it was dinner time after we'd been gone a full day, and Jesus didn't show up for this meal. When we didn't find him anywhere in the group, Joseph and I were frantic. We rushed back to Jerusalem for three long days. We searched the entire city. Oh, the chaos in the crowded city and all the possible places where it could have been just overwhelming. On the third day, we went back to this huge temple grounds to ask Simeon and Anna if they had seen him. They just pointed to one of the courts. We found Jesus 
is sitting with the teachers, trading questions and answers with them. Everyone was astonished at his understanding and his answers. I chided him for making us so anxious, but he just gave me a little sad smile and asked, why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, Jesus' question may seem mysterious to you, but it thrilled Joseph and me. Like all parents whose heritage was from the house of David, we had drilled our firstborn about his ancestors since he was tiny. He could recite their names on both my side and Joseph's side, just as I recited them to both Dr. Luke and Matthew when they wrote their books. He knew exactly whose son he was. He was the son of God. And we had taught him so. And many people don't believe some parts of my story, and many others don't believe any of it. But through the ages, there have been countless millions who believe my entire story and used it to bolster their faith. So, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I hope and pray you will too.
Different, 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 different tastes in music. Makes no difference what you like. If you want it, we got it right here. All right, everybody, do me a favor. Put your head together just like this. Uh, uh. What y'all doing over there? Oh, yeah. Take it 
sing with me, yeah. Sing with me, with me. No worries. There ain't nobody like him. There ain't nobody like him. Put your hands together, together, say it. Jericho was an impenetrable force to any army that he. Before even dealing with the wall, the attacking troops would have to navigate their way across a 27-foot wide, 9-foot deep pit that lined the outer edges of the city. Then there was the wall itself, a 17-foot high, 5-foot thick, pure mass of solid stone. If the attacking army managed to get this far without being shot down by archers, all that was left was to defeat the well-trained Canaanite army that was waiting within. This was the reality for a young leader named Joshua and his ragtag Israelite army. These Israelites, who had seen an entire generation live and die while wandering through the desert, were tired, hungry, and facing what seemed like an impossible task, a hopeless situation. Now, I haven't lived very long, but I've lived long enough to know this, that running into walls is a part of life. And the bigger the wall, the more hopeless the, the large walls of sickness, loss, divorce, addiction, they pop up all around us and they seem impenetrable. And just like the wall at Jericho, these walls rarely stand alone. The walls of our lives are often accompanied by a deep pit of pain, 
suffering and despair, and all the while an army of hopelessness attacks us on every side. If God loves us so much and is so powerful, then how could he allow these walls to pop up around me? pretend to have the answer to any of those questions, nor do I pretend to understand just how deep or dark your suffering has been. I simply want to suggest that maybe God does his best work from seemingly hopeless situations. I read about people and characters, all who faced seemingly hopeless situations. In fact, I cannot find a single person who walked faithfully with God without first facing a hopeless situation. Adam and Eve ruined paradise by inviting sin and death into a perfect world. A hopeless case. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers for his pride and put in prison. A hope Moses was cornered on the banks of the Red Sea with the most powerful army in the world, breathing down his neck, a hopeless case. Gideon was 300 against 300,000. David stood across the valley from a bloodthirsty giant. Esther was a woman trying to gain a word with a prideful king. Daniel's roommate was a lion. His friends were thrown in an oven. Jonah sucked at his job and got stuck in a whale. Peter was a Howard, Paul was imprisoned, the 5,000 had no food, Lazarus was dead, Timothy was too young, Abraham was too old, the youngest son was too stupid, the walls of Jericho were too strong, and Jesus was humiliated, hung on a cross, and buried in a tomb, burying all hopes of the revolution that was hoped for for thousands of years. Now everybody was ready to close the book on these stories. And game over. But if there's one thing we learn from get ready because that is exactly where God shows up. Because Joseph became second in command. The Red Sea parted. Esther spoke and Daniel tamed the lion. The oven felt like room temperature. Nineveh repented. Peter became the rock. Paul rejoiced. Twelve basketfuls were left over. Lazarus was just kidding. Timothy built a church. Abraham built a family. The youngest son came home to a party. The wall falling down. And Jesus of direction, defeating sin and death, and the creation that had been marred so many years ago was now restored for all time. With God, what seems like a hopeless situation is not only possible, it's favorable. Because only God can turn a mess into a message. Only God. God can turn a trial into a triumph, a test into a testimony, and a victim into a victory. His power is made perfect in weakness. So let us rejoice in our trials and hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Because he who promised is faithful, was faithful, and will always be faithful.
faithful no matter how hopeless the situation. It's all been said and done. Nothing. You can have your money. You can 
have your cars. You can have your name. I don't care who you are. You don't have nothing. And you don't, don't, don't have nothing. You, you don't have nothing. Let me encourage you to try Jesus for yourself. He's all the love, all the love, all the love you've been looking for. to ask you to bow your heads with me as uh, we pray and ask for the Lord's uh, presence here today. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for giving us this opportunity, Lord, to open your word and to see what you have to share with us this evening. Father, please speak to our hearts. We know that angels are here, Lord, both good and evil. Lord, may our hearts and our minds be in tune for what you will say. And then, Lord, may, may this message, may this truth be echoed all throughout Australia. From this uh, small and humble beginning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 4. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4. We are uh, living in a world where people are stressed. Um, people are worried, people are scared, uh, terrified, if you will, uh, for their future. This world is going through financial stress, political stress, all kinds of stress. Uh, this disaster that's happening here in Australia now is just a snapshot of uh, Disasters happening all over the world, and people are really looking for hope. People are looking, I believe, for rest. How many of you would agree with that? Uh, <clears throat> I want you to notice with me Hebrews 4 and verse 9. Hebrews 4 and verse Nine, the Bible tells us here, there remaineth therefore a, what everyone? Rest to the people of God. Praise God that there is rest for the people of God. Amen. The Bible tells us there remaineth a rest to the people of God. Uh, this term Rest is a very significant term. The Greek word is the word sabbatismos. Sabbatismos. And I've really come to 
to love that word. Uh, it has opened up uh, some incredible things in my study of the great controversy. I want to share some of those things with you this evening. I want you to understand that God here is telling his people that there is a rest that remains. In other words, there is a rest that is yet future for the people of God. And in order to understand this, you would also have to understand that uh, when God had uh, delivered or was delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt, he promised them a land of what? Of rest, a land of rest. It was a promised land. And so what God is telling us here is that just as uh, the Israelites were led out of Egypt into a land of rest, so there remains a rest for the people of God. Therefore, what is that rest that remains for the people of God? Any ideas, any thoughts? It is, it is the land, the heavenly promised land, the heavenly kingdom. That is the rest that remains for the people of God. Amen? How many of you are looking forward to entering into that rest? Amen. And I want you to understand again that this word rest, the, the Greek of it is sabbatismos. God, therefore, is calling heaven his rest or his what? Sabbatismos. And I thought to myself, this is totally mind-blowing that God would call heaven his sabbatismos. That's a powerful thought. Why does God call heaven his sabbatismos? And in order to understand this, we are going to, we're going to go back into the Old Testament and look at some verses. I want you to notice with me Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26. And you'll notice with me verses 33 to 35. God here, speaking to the children of Israel, tells them, he is basically warning them, listen, if you enter into Canaan and begin to disobey me, this is what will happen. Verse 33, I will scatter you among the heathen and will draw out a sword after you and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then shall the land enjoy her, what everyone? Sabbaths. As long as it lieth desolate and you be in your enemy's land, even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lieth desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when, ye de when you dwelt upon it. So, a land being at rest simply signified that the people in it were not rebelling against God. Does that make sense? If, if here the verses tell us that if the people were living 
against the will of God in that land, then the land was not enjoying her rest and God would move them out of that land so that the land could once again enjoy her Sabbath or enjoy her rest. How many of you following me? Okay. So I want you to notice again with me, Second Chronicles chapter 14, verse 6, another verse that will help us to understand what it means for a land to be at rest. Second Chronicles chapter 14 and verse 6, the Bible says here, also he built fenced cities in Judah for the land had what? Had rest. And he had no, what everyone? War in those days because the Lord God had given him rest. From this verse, we see that a land being at rest also meant that the land was not at what? Not at war. So let's recap those two things. Number one, a land being at rest means the inhabitants of that land were not rebelling against God. Number two, a land being at rest also signified that there was no what? War in that land. And we're going to go ahead and look at one more verse here. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21. The Bible says here, speaking of the 70 years of captivity for the children of Israel to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and 10 years. Remember the children of Israel were put out of their promised land because they were what? Rebelling against God. And so what we're learning here is that when a land was at rest, it simply meant that the land, the inhabitants of that land were at peace with God. There was no war, no conflict, and no rebellion against God. Therefore, we can begin to see why heaven would be called God's sabbatismos. Why? Because in heaven, there is no what? Rebellion against God, and there is no war. It is a land of peace. And again, I would ask how many of you are looking forward into entering into that sabbatismos of God? Amen. Well, we've got to learn something here that uh, basically the Sabbatismos represents three things. Harmony with God. Can you repeat that with me? Harmony with God. Number two, allegiance with God. What, everyone? Allegiance with God. And number three, to be rested in submission to God. Okay? Rested in submission to God. This is why heaven is called God's Sabbatismos. Now, not only is heaven God's sabbatismos now and in the future to come, but heaven was also God's sabbatismos in the past. Are you following me so far? Listen. In the past, heaven was a place where there was no war, no sin, and no rebellion until 
an angel named Lucifer decided to rebel against God. Therefore, Lucifer broke something in heaven. What did he break? He broke the sabbatismos. Are you following me? <laughs> he broke the state of peace in which heaven had dwelt for who knows how long. Lucifer brought about a state of what? Okay, if I use the word rebellion, I want you to give me another word here. Um, discord, okay, give me another word. Sin, another word. Unrest. <laughs> rebellion is good, but unrest, that's the word I was looking for. The devil brought about a state of Unrest. When I mention the word unrest, what do you think of? You think of war? You think of civil unrest? You think of political unrest? You think of social unrest? You think of religious unrest? Lucifer, by his rebellion in heaven, had, break, had broken the state of peace in heaven, right? And therefore brought about a state of unrest. So in case you haven't gotten the point yet, Lucifer broke the Sabbath. Hope you guys are just really like really just thinking hard <laughs> and not just going like this. OK, broke the Sabbath. <laughs> Lucifer broke the Sabbath. In heaven and in breaking the Sabbath, all we're simply saying is that Lucifer was against the very foundation of God's government, which is rest. You see, that was the foundation of God's government. Angels simply rested in the will of God. But Lucifer said, wait a minute, I am no longer going to rest in the will of God. And in his refusal to rest in the will of God, he was warring against the very principle, the very foundation of God's government, and therefore warring against sabbatismos. So if I were to ask you, what was the great controversy in heaven over, what would be your response? It would be, over the principle of rest. Sabbatismos. I don't need to rest in God. That was Lucifer's argument. The angel's argument was, no, we need to rest in God. What does it mean to rest in God? If God says do something, what do you do? You rest. Right? You don't resist, you Rest. God says A, God says jump, you rest in that. 
And this is what heaven was based upon. God commanded, it was done. The angels rested and Lucifer began to say, wait a minute, we don't need to rest in God. We don't need to do what God says. The argument was over the issue of rest. And so controversy broke out in heaven. And I thought that this was really interesting. I mean, um, we say that very often, controversy broke out in heaven, controversy broke out in heaven. And uh, sometimes we don't understand what we're actually seeing. So I want you to um, think of this with me. Um, God created the heaven and the earth by doing what? By speaking, speaking the word. And I was sharing this in my workshop earlier. Do you know that the word universe means single sentence or single verse? Do you know that? Uni, single, verse, sentence or stanza. So if you want to know how the universe came to be, <laughs> you see that? God spoke. Now the question is, who was the word? Or who was the verse that was spoken? It was Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the divine verse of God. Amen? And so uh, the devil uh, hated the verse of God. He hated Jesus. He hated the word of God. And the way I like to put it is that the devil was anti-verse or contra. <laughs> the devil was controverse. <clears throat> the great controversy, therefore, is simply against the verse or the word of God. Satan does not want us to rest in the verse of God. Does this make sense? The devil doesn't want us to be obedient to the verse or to the will of God. <clears throat> but there's something else. The devil, we, we understand, the devil was controversial, but there's something else that's interesting because you know the Bible says that Lucifer walked up and down in the midst of what? The stones of fire. What were those stones of fire? Okay, let me, let me, let me try to jog your mind a little bit. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, we're told here, Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2. I want you to listen to this. Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2. The Bible tells us here, we'll look at verse 3. This is speaking about God. No, we'll look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, and he said, the Lord came from Sinai and rose up from, from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran and he came with 10,000 of saints. From his hand went a fiery law for them. 
What was this fiery, fiery law written on? Tables of stone. So could it be possible that the stones of fire upon which Lucifer walked up and down in the midst of heaven, could it be possible that those stones of fire are actually a reference to the law of God? Lucifer walking up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Why would God call these the stones of fire? Can anyone tell me what fire represents in the scripture? Purification, God's presence. Uh, Hebrews uh, 12, I believe verse 29 says, our God is a consuming what? Fire. Why is he a consuming fire? Is he trying to scare us? I'm a consuming fire. You better watch out. No, the Song of Solomon tells us that love is like a vehement fire. God manifests himself as fire because he is love. So the stones of fire, if they are to point us to the law of God, Lucifer walking up and down in the law of God, we know that this law is a law of what? Of love. This law was summed up, by the way, were the ten, think about this with me. Do you think that the Ten Commandments were in heaven? Do you think there was a commandment that said, thou shall not commit adultery in heaven? No. No. The law in heaven was really summed up in one word. It was love. The angels did not, what I, the Ten Commandments, is what I call today righteousness for dummies. You know, God had to spell out for us what love looked like. But in heaven, all there was was love. And, and love was simply manifested by what? Rest. If you love me, or we might say, if you love me, rest. So Lucifer begins to rebel against this concept of rest because rest is the entire symbol. Rest is the entire foundation of God's government. Rest, it's that simple. Rest. Lucifer rose up in rebellion and became contraverse, contra Christ, but also contra law. You understand? So, guess what happens to Lucifer? He got kicked out. <laughs> Do you remember what we just read? God told the children of Israel, if you sin in my sabbatismos, I will remove you from the land so that the land can once again enjoy her rest. So Lucifer is moved out of heaven, he and his angels, and heaven is once again restored as God's what? Sabbatismos. I ask this question very often. 
How is it that Lucifer was able to deceive one-third of holy and intelligent angels? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever thought, how is it that he did it? And I, you know, I simply ask the question, do you think that if Lucifer said to the angels, hey, guys, I want to be evil, who wants to come with me? That the angels would have been like, hmm, uh, okay. No. Wouldn't have happened. The Bible says that these angels were deceived. Okay. How did Lucifer deceive one third of angels? By this. In Isaiah 14, Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High. If someone were to come up to you today and ask you, what is the Most High like? Some of the first things that would come out of your mouth would be what? He is loving, he's kind, he's merciful, he's long-suffering. So listen to what Lucifer was arguing then. Lucifer's argument was, I can be loving, kind, merciful, long-suffering, righteous, without God telling me how to do it. You following me? If we were to sum it up in one term, we would call that self-righteousness. So Lucifer's argument wasn't, let's go be evil. His argument was simply, hey, there are other ways to be righteous than what God has said. God, who are you to tell us how to be righteous? We're already really holy. <clears throat> Remember Korah's rebellion? Yeah. Any of you remember that? Where Korah rose up against Moses and said, why are you exalting yourself above the people? Don't you see that all the people are holy? That rebellion was a snapshot of what took place in heaven. Lucifer began to tell the angels, you don't need to rest in what God has said. You can do your own thing and be holy. We are already holy. Holiness has been, we, we are naturally holy. And so you can begin to see how angels uh, uh, could be deceived because the argument was one that simply said, isn't there, other, you know, can't there be other ways to righteousness? That was Lucifer's original argument. It's not his argument anymore. He's just straight out evil. But originally, we're even told Ellen White says Lucifer did not at first know whither he was drifting. Anybody ever read that quote? He didn't know at first. He was self-deceived into thinking that he could sanctify himself. So Lucifer's argument was what? Self-sanctification. Self-sanctification. I can be righteous by myself. I want you to notice again in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. And uh, you will notice. Isaiah chapter 14. Notice with me verse 13. Lucifer speaking, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon where? The mount 
of the congregation. What does that sound like to you? The mount of the con When I say the word congregation, what do you think of? A church. So did you realize there was a church in heaven? Anybody? Yeah, there was a church of angels in heaven. You know, what do you do at church? You worship God. That's what was going on in heaven. There was the mount of the congregation. And what happened to this congregation? It split. Over what? Over the sabbatismos. Listen to me. The first church split took place over the principle of rest. Let me uh, share something else with you about this verse. The term mount of the congregation is the Hebrew term har mohad. It is the same term that is used in the book of Revelation, but translated in the Greek as Armageddon. The word Armageddon, Har Mohad, or Megad in the Greek, same thing. Mount of the congregation, that's what Revelation um, um, 16 and in Isaiah 14, mount of the congregation. So listen to me then. There was a Har-Magad or an Armageddon where? Mount of the congregation. And what split the mount of the, the Har-Magad? What split it? It was the Sabbatismo. So then could it be that the Armageddon to come in the last days will focus over the issue of Sabbath? You see, beloved, what we're, what we're beginning to understand here is that the Sabbath goes much deeper than we have thought. Principles in there that take us much deeper, and I believe that when we begin to share these principles with our non-Adventist uh, friends, they will be true bearing, and then our preaching of the Sabbath will go like wildfire. That's the kind of fire I would like to see burning up Australia. So, Lucifer is cast out because there was a battle of Armageddon in heaven. He is now cast out and, and, and heaven is once again at peace. And now God is about to... And I want you to notice something with me. Genesis chapter 1, verse 4. Genesis chapter 1, verse 4. What the Bible tells us here, Genesis chapter 1, verse 4. 
God saw the light that it was good and God of the darkness. Day one, God saw that it was what everyone good. Verse ten, and God called the dry land. Earth, the gathering together, this water is called He sees. Good. Uh, verse grass and herb yielding scott and good. God said, in fact, Genesis 2, verse 15, the Bible says, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to what? To keep it. Everything was at peace with God. The Bible says that God put man in the garden to do two things. What? Now we can begin to understand why in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, God Sabbathed. Let me read it for you, Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Bible says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made and rested, or the Hebrew word is Sabbath. So God did what, everyone? Sabbath on the seventh day. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. Why was God resting? Because everything was at what? Peace in him. When God gave man the Sabbath, what he was giving him was the sign of a living. Okay, I tried some other way. What he was giving him was the symbol that earth was under the will of God in heaven. I am Sabbathing to let you know that everything is at peace in me. All is good. I am giving you in I am giving you the entire philosophy summed up in one day. to understand the devil hates the Sabbath so much it's not just because the Sabbath is a day it's because the Sabbath is the very philosophy it's like God taking all of his government laws and summing it up I am resting because all earth is at Sabbath Now, this is 2 verse 15. When the Bible says here that uh, God or God garden to keep it, I want to share with you what that word put 
means. Before I I want to show you something that when God gave Adam and Eve the Sabbath, it was a sign that heaven was in harmony. There was no war. Earth was in harmony. War on earth, and there was no rebellion against God. All earth was at peace. God also gave man the Sabbath to from falling under the deception that deceived one third of holy angels. What was the third of holy angels? Self or give me another word, self sanctification. You say, how do you get that, Pastor? Notice with me Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel 20. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12. Now there? All right, notice what it says. Ezekiel 12 verse 20. Moreover also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them. No, I am the Lord that sanctified them. Now let me read that to you with a different emphasis so you can get the picture, okay? Moreover, also I gave them between me and them, they might know that I am the Lord that sanctifies them. You don't sanctify yourself. Don't fall for the same lie that Lucifer deceived one third of angels with, that we can sanctify ourselves. I am giving you the Sabbath to know so that you can know that the only way that you can be sanctified is by resting in whatever I tell you. You don't sanctify yourself. Your works don't, your actions don't sanctify. The only way to sanctification is through rest. Isn't that beautiful? That Sabbath was to serve as a, as, as a, as a fortune as a protection against the very deception that caused one-third of holy angels to fall. And as long as man remained obedient to the will of God, all earth would remain in peace. I want to read this to you from the Good News Bible. This translation of Genesis 2, verse 15. It says, then the man in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and guard it. Guard. What was it that Adam was supposed to, was he supposed to guard the garden from weeds? Was he supposed to, you know, I mean, what was it that he was to guard the garden from? Understand that the garden that God had created, the garden of Eden. By the way, did you know that Eden was in heaven? Remember of Lucifer? Uh, uh, you have been in. The God, Eden, the garden of God, beloved, that garden, that Eden, which is another word or which is also translated as. 
paradise is another term for God's sabbatismos or heaven. Remember Jesus said, verily, verily, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Hebrew of it is Eden. So God had, had an Eden in heaven, and now he takes Eden, which is symbolic of his, his perfect government, and puts it on earth and says, Adam, guard Eden. Because <laughs> I know you guys are following me. <laughs> Guard Eden. Was he telling him? He wasn't telling him to guard the flowers and the trees. He was telling him to guard the very philosophy of Eden, which was what? Rest. Guard it, Adam. Because one is going to come who will try to bring you in a state of unrest. In fact, in that same uh, uh, verse, uh, when the Bible says that the Lord God put the man in the garden, the Hebrew word is nuach. Anybody want to say that word with me? Nuach. Let me tell you what it means. The word means to rest. It is the same word used in Exodus 20, verse 11 rested on the seventh day. Therefore, God put Adam in the garden, or I like the way that uh, Young's literal translation puts it, and Jehovah God taketh the man and causeth him to rest in the garden of Eden. Lord have mercy. I guess nobody called that one either. <laughs> God put Adam in the garden and caused him to rest? He put him in the garden and caused him to rest. I mean, as Seventh-day Adventists, you should just be like just jumping up and down right now. Not that I want you to jump up and down. You should be understanding that this issue of Sabbath goes way deeper than we have first thought. God put him in a garden and caused him to rest. The word means to confederate or to be in allegiance with. So God is basically saying here, Adam, as long as you rest, you are, in you are a confederate of mine. You are in allegiance with me. Adam was to guard the state of the garden. To keep, he was to guard the sabbatismos. Keep the peace, Adam. Adam was to be the first peacekeeper. And what happened? The devil came in, came to the garden, and said, uh, Eve, what? You can be like gods. Notice what he said to Eve. The same thing he said in heaven. I will be like God. He didn't come to Eve and say, Eve, I'm Mr. Satan. Would you like to follow me? Would you like to be evil? No, he said, Eve. You can be like God. You don't 
have to, you can sanctify yourself. You can be righteous yourself without God telling you how. You can know the difference between right and wrong. You can do it, Eve. And Eve eats the fruit. <laughs> and what happens? Adam and Eve, yeah. Adam and Eve, Adam eats as well. Adam and Eve break. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I mean, not that I'm rejoicing, but I'm just glad that you got that. Adam and Eve break the sabbatismos. Earth is now in a state of unrest. This is reflected by Romans chapter 8 verse 7, which says the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not what? Subject. What does the word subject mean? Under. What is the philosophy behind to be subject? It means that I am not resisting, or it means not to be resisting. It means to be what? Resting. The carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it. And so man had now received a carnal mind. I want you to fast forward with me just some time to the book of Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 3. How many of you would like to be saved in the last days? <laughs> Please let everyone say amen. amen. <laughs> Genesis chapter 6 verse 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives, which they all chose. Verse 3, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is. His day shall be 120 years. Uh, jump over with me very quickly down to verse, where are we here? Verse 5. The Bible says, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, what? Continually. Now, why did God destroy man? Through the flood? Because man was evil, what? Now, I want you to notice something here. This word continually actually means every day. <laughs> Man was sin day. He didn't even take a break. Okay, let me help you. <laughs> he didn't even take a resting period. He just cut straight through the week. Man was sinning every day, every day, every day. What do you think God is telling us? What do you think God is trying to tell us? That man had no rest. They had no what, everyone? Rest. Now, the Bible says that out of all the people on the earth, Noah found what? Grace in the sight of God. Anyone want to tell me or anyone know what the name Noah means? Yeah. 
Can you imagine that? Noah means rest. Oh, wow. The people are sinning every day continually, but Noah or rest found grace in the sight of God. What's the point I'm trying to tell you is this. In the last days, there will be people who are sinning every day. But those who find grace will be those who are resting in Jesus. Rest. So, Jesus, the very purpose of the gospel, who can tell me? <laughs> Does this make you happy as a Seventh-day Adventist? <laughs> Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you alone. Come unto me, all you that what? Labor and are heavy laden. Heavy laden with what? Sin. Labor in what? Sin. What is labor? Give me another word for labor. Works. Jesus says, the works of the flesh are these. And he begins to list, uh, you know, adultery, fornication, all these things. So he says, come unto me, all you that are working are heavy laden with sin, and I will give you rest. I will how to cease. I will teach you how to rest because the only way that you can be saved is through rest. Are you ready for this one? Therefore, the Sabbath is the ultimate sign of rest, not works. Okay, you don't get it. Um, you have been accused as a Seventh-day Adventist of being works oriented because you keep the Sabbath. Do you see how the devil has flipped that? The Sabbath is the sign of rest. Do you get it? It's the sign of rest. It's not the sign of works. Sabbath is the, the, the sign that I say I cannot sanctify myself by my works. The only way I can be sanctified is by resting in what God says. So if God says it, I rest in it. The devil has flipped the very sign of rest to be the sign of works. You see, what God wants us to understand, beloved, is that we cannot work our way to heaven. We must rest our way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I said when I saw that too. 
I was happy. Yeah. Rest your way to heaven. We need to understand something else in this context. That the Saudi symbol of resting in God can break the Sabbath whenever, say that word with me, whenever out of rest from God. Seventh-day Adventists, we have fallen for the lie that the Sabbath can only be broken on the seventh day. You're thinking real hard on that one. <laughs> Listen to me. The moment you step out of resting in God, you have already broken the Sabbath. Are you following me? Amen. You see, beloved, we have to understand the Sabbath better than we have understood it. Remember, why did God give the Sabbath? Because the first day was good, the second day was good, the third day was good, the fourth day was good, the fifth and sixth day was good. And then when it was all good, God said, I give you the Sabbath. What we do, first day of the week, crooked, second day of the week, crooked, third day of the week, crooked, fourth, fifth, sixth day of the week, cursing, and then, oh, Sabbath now. Church. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.